millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to History Hack. If you didn't know by now, we are the revolution. That means we're sharp, witty, lots of fun, but it also means that we're essentially the peasants in Les Mis huddled round a table in the corner of the bar with no money. If you enjoy the show, please do support us. We have a Patreon account by which you can donate a small monthly sum in appreciation of what you're hearing. Alternatively, we have Ko-fi in which you can just do a one-off donation as a thank you if you particularly enjoy a certain episode. Either way, we massively appreciate all of your support. Hope you enjoy the show. Hello, welcome to another episode of History Hack. You are on for Women's Rights Week and Alex has, I quote off of a Twitter post, got some of the ballsiest American lady brains ever. Alex, who have we got on? Oh, so we are continuing from our conversation with Elaine Vice about women struggling to get the vote uh, in America and beyond. We talked about beyond as well. And today we have with us Nina Harcrader, who is ballsy as shit, man. She's terrifying when she gets going. <laughs> uh, Nina's been on before. Nina is an expert in housing. Uh, and we want to. We kind of want to talk about how that links with ideas about having your own autonomy and how, like, okay, so Nina, hi. Hello, hello. It's good to be back. And um, this is, boy, what a topic. Yeah, I mean, we're going to talk about how women essentially go from just being other people's property to having some kind of like hold on their own destinies and what a struggle that has been. But before we do, we've given all of our guests an opportunity this week as American women, because we can rant all we want in Poland and England, but really we don't matter. What did you, and you have a daughter as well. More importantly, you have a teenage daughter. So how did you feel when Roe v. Wade was overturned? I honestly, I heard it and I think I stood up and just yelled at the top of my lungs a series of obscenities I think I stomped around the flat because uh, I was I was in London when when it was handed down and I was just like look we we they were threatening to do this but the fact that they actually went forward with it was just so devastating and rage making that you know I'm, I'm pretty sure my landlords upstairs were like oh my god what is happening down there there's this like lion roaring and stamping but it, it's completely outrageous and completely outrageous and absurd and ridiculous and yet they did it anyway you know just so, we're talking about like because we just thought what can we do at history hack because we can all be really angry and fighty but for people to understand why we're all so angry we need to talk about the struggles that women have gone through to get to the point where they had these rights in the first place that you're now 
stripping off them. I mean, and Alina's on today. And Alina, they've done this in Poland as well. Yes, yes, they have. Uh, abortion is banned in Poland and it's caused some absolute uh, medical emergencies where mother and baby have died because the doctors are absolutely terrified to do any, you know, operations. God, you know, let's abort the child. And uh, it's it's causing, I really don't hope people aren't really listening for Poland. I might be ostracised. But have <laughs> not got just Polish women flooding to the Slovakian border. Yeah. Uh, and the Czech border. Oh, that's it. Yeah. Yeah. So the Germany, they're going. They're going everywhere. But to be honest, let's hope uh, some people are smart in the next couple of years and overturn it. But hey, we're in a Catholic country. There's not much I can do. Yeah. Um. I think everyone was shocked because it was America that did it. Yes. Right? But yeah. it's now thirteen. Yeah. I think thirteen states. Although it's it's yeah. obviously fluctuating. But where. I mean, arguably, so Ohio, as I've pointed out already on other yeah. podcasts this week, uh, a 10 year old rape victim was impregnated oh God, and has yeah. had to cross state lines exactly. to abort the baby. And they're, um, and they're prosecuting, you know, what, what they're trying to do, what the, you know, what, what the right is trying to do now is basically um, they've published the, the, not only the name of the physician who mm. performed the legal, I'd like to point out, procedure, thank you. Um, is, you know, giving her address out, posting pictures of her. I mean, essentially what they're trying to do is they're trying to do what was, um, you know, the murder of the of the Kansas doctor, I think it's now 20 years ago, where they, you know, and again, legal guys, let's try to remember this is a legal procedure. And, you know, some whack job got a gun and shot him and killed him. I tried to explain this to a nine-year-old American child who was asking questions on it the other day. And I said... The reason people are as angry as they are is not it's not down to whether you believe in abortion or not. It's down to the state trying to control you to the extent that if you drive a friend to the state border, you can be arrested for being an accessory to murder. That's 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 a terrifying issue at stake here. But let's talk about women as... (sighs) So the period that you do, you do Victorian stuff. And I think we can argue, can't we, that throughout this period, a a woman is kind of, most women are expected to go from being a daughter and a child to being a wife uh, under the roof of her father to under the roof of her husband. And if she doesn't take that route, she's not following the normal grain, is she? So, I mean, how do we get to that point? And when do we start to see women taking um, not just autonomy for their bodies, but for their lives as well? And we're getting to the point now where it is not in the slightest bit odd in the Western world if you move out as a woman and have your own home. No, not at all. Um, essentially, what, what happens in the United States, and, and we've, we've had chats about what happens in England previously, but what happens here in the United States is it's it comes down quite frankly to um you know capitalism in other words what happens is we begin to acquire um the technology uh to spin cloth and to spin thread um and once we get that and some of it we some of it is is designed by um you know people who who have lived in the united states for a while some of it quite frankly we make some research trips to england and we observe what you're doing and we come back with technology um but basically what happens is that you you get um at lowell massachusetts i'll use that because that's that's the principal example lowell massachusetts you begin to build mills and what they discover no surprise, 
is that um, they have a ready uh, and available labor market because of all of the young women. Um, essentially, we are still an agrarian nation at that point, for the most part, um, in the North, as well in the South. Whole other discussion, we're, we're not going to go there. But in the North, what happens is you have essentially what people are doing mostly is subsistence farming. Farming in the Northeast of the United States is crappy because the soil's not great. It's stony. Um, you know, it's, it's, you never really make any money. And if you're female, when your father dies, the land and the farm are going to go to the boys. And you really, there, there, there isn't much future for you. Um, so as mills are built, they are looking for labor and they actively recruit young women because they know, A, that they're there and B, you can pay them a lot less because they're women. Um, and that's a, we could get into that, but we won't right now. So let's just take that as, as, as a given because it is. So um, women begin leaving the various towns and hamlets, primarily in New England, and they go to Lowell, Massachusetts, and they take these jobs as mill hands. Um, you know, and they're good at it. They're used to working hard. They're used to working long hours. Being a farmer's daughter is, is not, you know, not a lightweight, applica- uh, um, you know, sort of a job. So, but if you bring all of these single young women, many of whom are also doing this to, to help support their families, um, so they're sending a lot of the money back home because, you know, subsistence farming, you can't eat. You do have to figure out where they're going to live. And so this is really the first time you get an organized attempt to create a dwelling for a bunch of young women. Um, so you basically get, you know, the, what, what are, what's now known as the classic mill boarding house. So uh, it, it's it, because we can still build in wood because uh, we have lots of wood still and it's cheaper. Um, many of these are built in wood, some are in stone. It depends upon the location and the available materials. But essentially what they look like on the outside is, is what we'll see later, which is it looks like a domestic dwelling, multiple stories though, because it's efficient to have, you know, four or five, you know, two or three, however many you can build. Um, individual rooms upstairs, sometimes shared rooms, um, you know, maybe a space for your trunk. And then um, depending upon the shift you're on, because remember, you know, mills are running as long at this point, as long as you've got daylight, you know, and then as time goes on, you get, you might use candlelight or you might use eventually coal gas light or so on, or some form of lighting. Um, you have young women on different shifts. And so, you know, there are organized meal times. You show up downstairs and have your meal in a common room. There is a boarding house sort of you know, uh, uh, manager cook, um, she exercises some authority, but not really much. Um, and that's kind of how you live. So for the first time, you're not, you're not in your own family home, which is interesting. And you're not working as a servant girl, because that, of course, is another situation that you might have found to better your family would be to leave the family farm, go and work as a servant girl for a more affluent family. So this is kind of the beginning. Nana, I'm interested in how society views these women. I mean, both where they actually come from and where they're working. I mean, how does it look? How do they view them? In my opinion, hopefully they're being viewed positively, but I'm dreading your answer. So Uh, yes, well, my, my answer is is complicated. (laughs) Um, What, what happens is yes, immediately there are all sorts of, there's all sorts of layers of moral panic 
um, you know, on the part of often, you know, male authorities like, uh, you know, uh, more affluent men, you know, men who can can hold the public ear, ministers, et cetera, et cetera, because this is totally different. And the minute that women are not, because women are thought of as, as you know, as lesser human beings with smaller, smaller brain capacity, less ability to, you know, navigate moral conundrums, the idea that they're not being guided by a male figure is very troubling to most people. And so you do see things in the press. You see, you know, um, oh my, you know, these, what are they getting up to? And how are they being supervised? And, you know, they should be home and that sort of thing. And concerns about them having money, you know, they have no guidance. They're going to spend it on fripperies and so on. One of the things that I found fascinating is there is a publication in Lowell, um, which is evidently organized by some of the women who work in the mills. Yeah. And it's called the Lowell Offering. And what's fascinating is it it runs from like about the late, and I'm going to get these dates wrong. Someone will call us out on this, but roughly the 1840s. And what you see are different contributions. Now, I know someone has studied this. I'm sure they will call us out and say that it was more, air quotes, curated. It's not just, uh, you know, contributions from Milgos, but there are some young women who clearly are working in the mills. They are literate. They can, you know, they can, they can read and write. And it's really interesting to hear their perspective on what it's like to work there in mills. What's it like really, which, you know, is also can be a puff piece to try to get more young women to work. Um, But a lot of the pieces are counteracting and countering this kind of view that these girls are immoral you know, that they're getting up to no good, that they're fancy dressing, that they're out at night with, you know, flash young male mill workers, and that God forbid, they will no longer be virgins and no longer be suitable for for, for mothers. So it's really interesting to read. They talk about sharing their meals downstairs. Um, One of the huge motives that they have for being there is that they get paid well. They make actual for the time period. And do I have figures right now at my fingertips? I do not. I apologize. But what they're saying is, here we are. We work, we work just as hard as we would on the farm, but we get paid. And that means we can send money to our families and we can support ourselves. We can make our own clothes. We can buy our own clothes. We can save money so that if we want to get married or if we end up moving back to the farm, we have a nesting, we have money that we can live on, something we would have never had before. And that's really interesting. So, but yes, there is a continual sort of, and it's always, they're always casting aspersions on, on the young women's character, you know, only, uh, only someone who's not, you know, not moral and not, uh, you know, fit to be a wife and a mother would, would, would become a male girl. You've mentioned it twice now, and it's really interesting to me. So you're, they're still assuming, like now, we would assume, like Alina would go, I don't want to be a wife and a mother. That sucks. I'm going to go live on my own, drink vodka, play with my Stafford Bull <laughs> Terrier. Right. I don't need a man. Exactly. We're not there, are we? They, this is right. like, they're not, they're not going from child to wife, but they're still right. expected to end up there, aren't they? So yeah. it's a question of, I love, I, I don't love it. Sorry, I, it disturbs me completely. But I, I kind of love how these, they just expect them to. Oh, yeah, yeah. 
Absolutely. Uh, it's the question that they might be tainting their future prospects Absolutely. by breaking the norm and going off and do Absolutely. this. And that's how people are regarding them. Yeah. And some of this is remember the, the importance of the Christian religion in everyday life in the United States at this point. So, you know, remember the folks who flee England are, are fleeing because they don't want to be Church of England. You know, they want to be dissenters and they're being persecuted and prosecuted. So, you know, and during this period, the majority of individuals are still encouraged to or expected to go to church. People still are modeling their lives uh, on how they're supposed to live. And there are lots of historians of religion who can tell you where this is in our history and in our cultural history and why this is still important. But, you know, because, because the Bible and, and I'm going to attract lightning bolts from all sorts of fundamentalists here, but bring them, the, bring them on <laughs> yeah, because the Bible is, as we know, is a document that has been edited and rewritten. Certain things have been put in, certain things have been taken out. And the version that most people are using is the King James Bible done during a period when it was really important to reinforce social norms and class and so on and so forth. The role of women in the Bible is always taught that this is your job, man. This is what you're on the planet to do. And you're subject to your husband because Eve. And so there's not much, there isn't any discussion about what you would do if you weren't getting married, although there are women who choose not to, there are women who say that uh, from society's perspective, this is a deeply weird thing to do. And that's because society, you know, it's a patriarchal structure. What I find fascinating though, is trying to read between the lines in some of these publications and figure out how many of these young women actually were intending to get married. And if so, was it because it was so ingrained and taught to them, was it, this is the only, this, this is practical. In other words, without a husband, I am not going to be able to do in the long list of things that you could do, um, you know, or, you know, how many of them are continuing to work there because it's allowing them to delay getting married. It's allowing them to make their own money. It's allowing them to, to live a life unfettered by, by marriage and childbearing which you know let's face it once you got married that was your future you know there really was no way to 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 avoid that for the most part so it's fascinating to read some of these things and what they have to say i was actually gonna add a comment there before i ask my question because i can just see that me and alex would be definitely in there working away because not every woman especially modern day not every woman is made to have children, have a husband. I mean, some of us, for God's sakes, get on our own. We have our own lives. We have our own But this houses. is the My mum in the early 70s still went from child to wife with nothing in between. It's not, and, and I have friends at football who are in that age bracket, women in their 60s who say, if I was a young woman now, I wouldn't have kids. But I just, I did it because it was what you do. Um, so I guess, Alina, what we're looking for next is like, for American women is how did you get from Lowell? What's the next step, Nina, um, in terms of women taking some kind of ownership over their living situations and and not being like essentially chattel? We were talking before the episode and oh, yeah. I love you used a phrase, wombs on legs. Oh, yeah, absolutely. 
Absolutely. Yeah. So, so Lowell is interesting because this is how it works. Now, ultimately, um, just so we can make a, we can make a transition here rather than, than jumping away from Lowell rapidly. Ultimately, women do, young women do max out there and they max out because they can only rise to certain positions. And ultimately the people in charge there, the highly paid folks, the people who who are going to be able to support families on their wages are always the men. So sooner or later, you, and it's also brutal work. So I think those two things combine to make it freedom making, if you will, for a number of young women, but technology changes um, in terms of how much you're actually having to physically do. And then the fact that you, you know, you can't, move beyond a certain level mean that it's, it, it doesn't keep women from having to leave and do, and do other things. As the United States continues to industrialize, um, what happens in Lowell um, in terms of the types of jobs women can get begins to happen in other cities. And there's always an issue of, you know, you've got loads of children at home, you can't support them all. And at a certain point, the older kids have to leave and they have to go and make their own way. So you begin to get um, influx of young women into, into cities, into New York, into Boston. Later on in the century, it's going to be Chicago. Chicago's not really a thing at this point. But by the 1850s and 60s, you have a lot of young women um, who are working in various things uh, like manufacturing and so on in New York. So the concern moves there. And it's, again, it's always a moral concern. Where are these young women living? Are they going to end up prostitutes? Because God knows a young woman on her own, sooner or later, that's going to happen. So the next step still isn't yet a real autonomous step because the next step in the States um, during this period, 50s and 60s, are what, what you might call moral homes for young women. And these are often um, uh, because in New York, for example, and in Boston, you don't get employer provided housing. Um, you know, the, the, the manufacturing market is such that um, employers don't feel like they have to provide for their employees. They're like, you're on your own. You know, I pay you and that's it. You figure it out. Um, women get paid so little that, that it is, and quite frankly, yeah, it is dangerous to try to live in a boarding house often if you're, if you're a young woman. Um, so you get these sort of, so you get the, the newly ledgered middle-class women who are, again, largely exerting their power in the public by arguing that it's their Christian duty to take care of other women. And you begin to get these quote moral homes. So you'll get a group of women who have leisure time, who have access to some funds and they band together and they organize and they rent and redo the interior of an existing building and they open it as a home. And that's what they do. So you take your bedrooms upstairs and you, you cut them up. So you've got multiple young women living in different rooms. Downstairs, you create one dining room where everybody eats and so on and so forth. But the fascinating thing is the hoops you have to jump through in order to get into these homes. So they're self-selecting moral girls. And I think they do that for two reasons. One, because they can't convince anybody, and by this I mean men, they can't convince any powerful men to support them unless this is their Christian duty. Um, They are concerned for their own reputations in terms of associating with, you know, bad girls. 
um, and so on. And so you've got to you've got to like fill out all these forms. You have to come with a letter of recommendation from your employer and a character recommendation. You have to go through all of these rules. You have to go to morning prayers. When you get up in the morning, you have to come to come to the meals when they're served. Uh, the door's locked at a particular time. You know, you're not allowed to get lights are out. The gas is put out at 10 o'clock. So it's very clearly designed to make you behave a certain way and to preserve your virtue. And, and there are also age restrictions because they figure, you know, by the time you're 24, 25, you should be married. So it's interesting. They do serve a function for some women, but there are very few of them. They're very restricted. And most young women can't meet, you know, they, they can't live there because they can't, they can't meet those types of standards and they don't want to live there, you know, because they're working hard during the day, they're making money. And, and to them, this seems ridiculous. They should have this set of rules when they're already navigating through their adult lives so much on their own. Does this mean society is much nicer to them because they're better behaved? Well, you know, that's an excellent question because I think they, the privileges, if you can call them that, that they get are living in a home, knowing there's going to be food and knowing they're, they have a safe place to sleep at night. But first of all, again, numbers are very small, you know, you, so you'll open a home and you can fit, you know, 40 or 50 girls Well, there are thousands and thousands of young women who are working for some young women, it's still too expensive. And I've got figures somewhere. Uh, on my desk on this one, but some young women, because women get paid so little, can't afford even the, you know, even the cost of staying in one of these moral homes. Um, Because the premise again in capitalism is these, you can't do it as a charity. It's not a handout because that would make these young girls not self-sufficient. And so it's always tricky. They're always fundraising. They're always trying to figure out how to not make it a charity or a handout. Um, you know, at the same time as their expectations for behavior and so on, and and you're coming and going very high. None of the women in this chat right now would survive in one of these places because, frankly, we either stomp out or get ourselves kicked out inside of yes. Fortnite because, screw this, it sounds awful. Yes. So yes. what's the normal experience for this point? All of these women coming in, are they living in horrible housing conditions? Yes. Uh, are, they, are they ending up resorting to things like the sex trade as well to get by or... I, and I take it they're just yeah. what, as, what exactly is happening? Moral outcasts, right? It's, it's, it's very tricky to find the information during this period. Um, we our census at this point is very non-specific. If I look at an English census for the 1850s and 1860s, I've often got individual names and actual street locations. Censuses during this period are muddy. Um, the early ones only record sort of the number of people in a particular place, and there might not even be a street address if you're out in the country. So, some of, so to answer your question, Alex, it can be really hard to figure out where these women are because there isn't information. Um, there are very few records from any of the women themselves, uh, for all the reasons that we as women historians know, they either have not been taught how to read and write because they're girls, or if they wrote anything down, those papers are gone because nobody thought they were worthy of, of keeping. Um, by the time you get to the 1860s and 1870s in the States, you start to be able to figure out where the young women are. And the answer is a lot of them end up lodging with 
families having what are called hall bedrooms. So in other words, if you're, because the city is so expensive, most working people either rent as they do in London, they rent a room or they rent part of a room. And sometimes if you are, you know, if you have enough money to own an apartment or to rent part of a building, you then sublet a room. And this is often how these young women live, or they have the class, what, what I, what I'm, the term I'm using is a hall bedroom in that the, the, the people who are actually living in the flat or tenement or whatever will carve off that space. It would have been a passageway and they basically put a curtain at one end, shove a bed in it and say, right, this is your room, you know? So as far as we can tell, um, most young women have to put up with pretty gruesome living conditions. Um, and they also, the other issue is that they're working such absurdly long hours that the only time that they're any, they're, that they're in wherever it is they're calling home is kind of to, you know, fall into bed and sleep and then be up again at the crack of dawn and, and back at whatever work they're doing. Um, but it's a tricky one and it needs, it needs more research to figure out what's happening to the huge numbers of young women who are not finding a place in one of these, these homes. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Can I segue before Alina moves us on to the next stage in the timeline? Yeah. Um, talk about, <laughs> like I'm not going to just do it anyway. Oh. Um Let's talk about then the women that do fall into uh, disrepute, if you like. Uh, what, and from a housing perspective as well, I'm thinking particularly of homes for unmarried mothers and things like that. Right. When do we see them come in? Uh, do we see an influx of them with this movement of women around? Or is this a whole PhD that obviously you haven't done and I'm asking too much of you? <laughs> that may be that you you may have jumped outside of what I can tell you that is actual fact based. I can tell you I can give you a sense only because it always pops up anytime I start looking at these buildings. There are always in any city in the north of the United States and the Northeast in particular, because that's where we've got most of our cities during this period. There are always some sort of a home for wayward girls, orphan girls, um, you know, things that in England, uh, truant girls, you know, and so on. Um, and yeah, they, the, the problem of what do you do when it's no longer a child becomes an issue. And, you know, a lot of this has to do with just the sheer population. You know, people can't feed their families. 
And so if they can't, you know, so, um, you know, girls as young as 10, 11, 12 are trying to find work. And yeah, tragically, because, you know, the age that uh, the age that men consider a young girl an adult is absurdly and terrifyingly young. Yeah, you you get a fair number of these young women into the sex trade because it's the only way they can make money. And to be honest, you can often make more money in the sex trade than you can as a factory worker. And it just comes down to how am I putting food on the table? How am I eating? How am I putting clothes on my body? Um, unclear where these women live. I think it's, it's still, unfortunately, or fortunately, you know, I know ideas about sex workers have changed. And we now have an understanding that along with people and young women who are exploited and trafficked, that there are people who, ref- who, who, for whom sex work is an active choice and they feel or they have autonomy and they make decisions and they look after themselves. But during this period, that's a really tough question. Um, I think they live in flats. I think there are certainly, you know, bordellos and houses. Um, you can go through um, newspapers and things like that to find those. But that's a whole other, you know, what's happening. And, and it depends upon the city too. You know, that's a whole other area that needs exploration, I think. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. It's very interesting because you've talked about the problems of nailing down these women and their experiences. So when does it get better and when does society get more accepting of these women, if it gets more accepting of these women? It, It stays tricky for a while and it becomes very related to class. What a surprise. Um, what, what starts to happen by, there is always a strand of the quote moral home that continues in cities and it gets picked up by the YWCA, for example, um, in the United States, as indeed it does in, in England. Um, it begins to get slightly more flexible. You get women who are devoutly Christian, but they are also recognizing the challenges to young working women. So there's a slight shift in terms of acceptance of young women not living in their own homes. And so the shift comes, it's still very much, how do they stay moral? How do we know they're behaving properly? But it also becomes, how do we provide a clean, safe place for them to live because their lives are so hard? Um, The first purpose built from, you know, getting an architectural plan, buying a piece of land and constructing a building um, place for um, working women to live, it doesn't happen in New York City until 1891. And it's just simply a question of how do we get the money to do this? Because we're not guys. It's built by the YWCA. um, And it's still there. You can still see it near, uh, near um, Union Square. It's basically six stories, and it it hasn't really deviated from the original plan that we talked about at Lowell in that you've got a ground floor where you've got got a place to eat. Um, There is a really nice lounge, so you can sit and read books and and, um, 
you know, play music, there's a piano. Once you start going up the stairs, you have um, two choices in terms of bedrooms, depending upon how much you want to pay. You can either share a room in there. You'll see images of this individual cots. Everybody has a little dresser. Or if you want to pay more, you can have your own room, which is pretty tiny. Um, For health concerns, everybody usually gets a window because, of course, ventilation and health. Uh, they're pretty Spartan, but again, you you know it, it, what what I think is interesting is that the comforts are downstairs in the public spaces. The individual bedrooms are still very Spartan, but you can have access to music. You can eat meals there. You can socialize with other young women. And what's interesting is if you look at the population that's living there, they tend to be um, borderline white collar workers. So you have teachers, for example, teaching has now become a profession that's acceptable for women and you can stay a teacher. And there are plenty of women who stay teachers and don't get married. Um, typists, secretaries, um, the occasional, what I find fascinating is the occasional self-identified photographer or artist will live there. So uh, that's a roundabout way to answer your question. It starts to get better and more acceptable for women but really women who are coming in and might be middle-class to begin with or upper middle-class who are choosing to have a profession because they are self-identifying as I am going to be a professional woman. I'm going to be a teacher. I'm going to be a photographer. I'm going to be an artist. I'm going to be a writer. Um, So there is still criticism of shop girls and factory girls. And there is often still not much done until the turn of the 20th century to try to help those young women, to recognize that they're still struggling, to recognize how little money they make, and to recognize that, you know, it's just, yes, it's partly a question of their moral virtue, and that never goes away. But it becomes, and I think it's, it's the rise, it's the shifts in the way that people in the United States are thinking about working people and the rise of progressivism and so on has a knock-on effect for places for, for young women. And it's also at this time that you begin to get groups of women who are better educated, who maybe have gone to university or who have had some arts training or crafts training, they begin to call themselves businesswomen. And they band together and they find a wealthy benefactress and they actually build a hotel in 1903 called the Martha Washington Hotel. And that's a whole other kind of a situation. And that's where you begin to see the idea that there aren't rules and we have the luxury. I was going to ask, where's the morality level? Are they still inflicting that on themselves? Yes. And and what happens is it shifts and it becomes more class-based. So whereas all women were suspected early on, right? If you were not going to be a wife and mother, you were immediately thought of as, you know, what's wrong with you? Um, Now, as women have pushed for more rights, as it becomes, it becomes um, all right for women to want to have some education, Uh, As there are some women, uh, colleges and universities in the United States start roughly about the time that they do in England. So you begin to have college educated women. There's still a small group, but you can. Like the mid 1880s, isn't it? Yeah, it's 1870s, 1880s. That seems to be true on both sides of the pond. Um, And you get so now you have women who have who can read and write, who've grown up 
being educated, sometimes at home, sometimes going to schools. Um, and, and these are the women who then begin to look around them and say, hmm, you know, I'm educated and I'm going to have to accept some, you know, some guy who's going to offer me, you know, uh, a, a home and so on. But the minute that I'm his wife, I actually will have less autonomy than I have now. And they begin to recognize that and they begin to, and it's also, mind you, you know, the drive for women to, to actually become full citizens is really early in the United States. You know, I mean, people are talking about it in the, well, Abigail Adams writes her famous letter, you know, of course, around the time of the Declaration of Independence, the Revolutionary War, but that never goes away. You know, it's just that it begins to really gain traction. Um, in the latter part of the century. And so, um, you know, some of these young women who've gone to college and who've read, you know, all these things and, you know, women who are self-educated, you know, they look around them and they become dissatisfied. Um, and it begins to be, you know, why am I property? You know, why can't I own things? Um, you know, why the minute I'm married, I'm doomed to essentially just having babies until I can't anymore. Um, you know, and so there's a combination of going to the city to seek work that is fulfilling combined with you might start there because your family needs you to earn money and there are more wage earning opportunities. And so with that comes, okay, so I'm here and I need a decent place to live. Um, so the Martha Washington is interesting because it is the first time it's primarily a woman driven project that's not focused on caring for our more vulnerable lower class sisters. It's we're going to do this and we're going to design it in a way that is they, they make a big they make a big thing about saying that it's the interior is designed by a woman designer. So it has all of the little perks and things she wants. It has a hairdressing salon, for example. It has a very nice dining room where you go and you sit. You don't sit at a long table with lots of other women. You sit at individual tables and you can order your meals as, as you would in a restaurant. So it's very much a business women's, professional women's hotel. Now, the prices reflect it. So you do have to have a reasonable amount of money. Um, and as is true of earlier structures, if you see the bedrooms at, you know, if you see the bedrooms, they're not super fancy, um, you know, uh, because again, women still don't make enough money. Um, but it's, it's a real, it is, it's revolutionary in that there really are no rules. And apparently the, the staff with notable exceptions are all women. So they have women elevator operators, for example, women clerks at the front desk, you know. Uh, and so on. So it's it's designed for women by women. And and how what do happened, men react to this place? Well, I'll, I'll tell you in a minute. One, it's also one thing. One thing that I did find that's interesting is because of this and because of the timing, it becomes the spot where a very significant women's suffrage organization have their regular meetings because they have meeting rooms. So uh, I'm, I'm going to forget because the, the women's movement is doing interesting things at this point. There are arguments about who should get the vote, et cetera. But one of the national women's suffrage organizations has regular meetings there soon after they open and they have their regular meetings there all the way up until women actually finally win the vote in 1920. 
Um, ask me that question again, Alex. I'm going to guess. What do you reckon, Alina? I reckon they mock it. I reckon men mock it because that's just their own, I, like on mass is their only defense when women are off doing something that doesn't require their presence, right? For me, my guess is they make something bigger and better that's just for men, like a men's yeah. club. Yeah. Or they're like, oh, they're all lesbians, clearly, and weirdos. They, there are, there is a letter to the New York Times soon after the Martha Washington opens, written by one of the women residents there, where she says that there are bus tours that are stopping in front of the hotel to point out the women living there. And that it's, it's a curiosity and that it's so odd that they're, because of course, New York, how can we make money off of this? Yeah, right? Yeah. They're actual bus tours, but there are also young men who apparently show up and heckle the women. What a surprise. So this is, you know, yeah, it, it represents a threat to the status quo. And there are, as you know, we all know this. Uh, you know, so there are, um, I mean, there's certainly some women who are uncomfortable and that, you know, there are some letters written about how this is unladylike and so on and so forth. You know, let's not, let's not forget that we had anti, anti-suffragists in the United States, anti-votes for women. And there were many women who were against voting for women. Um, so there is, this does stand out. It is considered odd, but it's successful. It stays successful and it becomes the model for other hotels. So soon after this, you get the Hotel Irvin, you get, um, uh, you know, a, a bunch of other purpose-built hotels for young women in New York. They are of varying um, costs because it's still recognized that you have to, you know, if you have to be a, a serious professional white collar person, woman, to be able to live in the, in the Martha Washington. Um, but the other interesting knock-on effect is that it then trickles down. So for the first time, you have a hotel for young working-class women called the Hotel Trom- uh, the, the Tromark Inn. It's, it's still there. It's now been converted into condos. But their selling point is we are not here. Um, we're not behaving like you're, uh, what's the word they use? There are no uh, no strict rules. You can live here and be independent. Their only rule that they say is we will lock the doors at 11, but if you come back later, you ring the bell. And then there's there are a few words that say, you know, if this keeps repeating, we might make a decision about you. But the point is, because yes, young working women are saying, you know, I don't want to live in a place where I have to check in and check out all the time and everybody's breathing down my neck and telling me what to do. So the Tremor in basically their selling point is it's clean. You have freedom. They provide ironing rooms. You can do your laundry. Whereas in the fancier women's hotels, you're not allowed to do that. So this really recognizes that young working women um, need laundry facilities. They need to be able to wash, you know, what the Brits would call their smalls. They need to be able to iron their shirtwaists before they go into work. Um, healthy meals. There's a library. Um, you know, if you contrast the the public furnishings and the fin- level of finish of the Tremart Inn to the hotel, Martha Washington Hotel, there's a clear difference. There's no question. You know, they have the classic potted palms, right, in the hotel lobby at the Martha Washington. They don't have that at the Tremart Inn. It's much more, um, you know, it's, it, it, it's not fancy. Uh, the chairs are simpler. You do eat at a long table at the Trail Market, not at individual tables and so on. But, but beyond that, the fact that it's more, um, it's not as physically fancy, 
um, you're, you are still getting uh, similar freedoms, which I think is really interesting. That's about 1906, 1907 when the Tremarkin opens. Nina, thank you so much for this. Like, Alina, I don't know. It just, again, so we we had on Monday, we had Elaine Vyas. We've got uh, more to come this week on contraception, abortion and legislation of sex and stuff. We are focusing on America. We're not saying America was the only country that had issues with how they treated women. We're not going there. Uh, But it just strikes me that here is something else. The the decision to live where you want to live and how you want to live again took decades yes. decades to achieve the freedom and autonomy to decide where you want to live and and how you want to do it um without yeah, being policed and judged and everything yeah, absolutely um, so i guess the last question we're asking nina everybody uh who comes on is like so how do you own I mean, this Way thing is a is a huge step backwards this is like reversing all of this effort and all of this evolution if you like uh, so where does america go next boy that's an excellent question i think one thing we've seen um after the after the supreme court um basically upending of 50 years of, of settled law by the way unprecedented i'd like to point out you don't upend settled law and yet here we are is that it does go back to the states and kansas just had a, wasn't really a referendum, but they went to pass a law which was going to codify into the state legislature, if I, legislation, if I understand this correctly, um, that you, if you were, if you live in Kansas, that you have a right to, that, that abortion is still legal. You have a right to choose for yourself what you're going to do in those situations, which gives you control over everything basically you know and and one of the things about about having your own place to live is it does free you from the what was seen as the inevitability of your female role um which was you know again house wife children and you had no control over any of that by choosing to live on your own, staying single and working, you, that's how you're exercising control during this period as, as, as a young woman. Um, because you still don't have bodily autonomy, but at least you can have some control by choosing to live in this way or finding a way to live where you are not immediately in a physical uh, relationship with a man or dependent on a man. Um, and I think, so that's the workaround. That's the, the ability to choose that is then I think contributes later on to other freedoms. So yes, by upending Roe versus Wade, we've taken the control out of women's hands. And I'd also like to point out, there's no legislature about men's bodies. I mean, the simple solution as somebody said was, and this, this was a meme, um, and it was immediately considered outrageous by everybody. But the simple solution, if you really don't want to have abortions, is you pretty much, as soon as men approach puberty, is you just do an automatic vasectomy, people. That's easy <laughs> to do it. Snip. And then, you know, when you get married or you decide you want to have a child and you find a woman to agree with you, then it's reversible. And it's actually an incredibly simple procedure. I'm sure it's, men love the idea of having. Oh, well, of course, the other question. thing was, what? You want to do this? You know, and of course, the rejoinder was, the rejoinder was, so you, you don't think the government should legislate men's bodies? 
you know, and it was like, mic drop, you know. So, okay, tr- let, let's try to get this through your thick skulls here. So, yes. Um, next steps, I think, keep doing what Kansas has done. Each state legislature needs to codify this. They need to recognize the outrageousness of this decision. And they need to recognize that the majority of people in the United States don't agree with them. And they're not, you know, they're not passing legislation for the benefit of anybody, you know. And it's absurd. And I will be stomping around and yelling and marching and protesting and and pushing different, um, you know, I'm lucky because I live in a state that is very, that is one of the more pro-woman, pro-bodily autonomy states. But, you know, my sisters in the South, boy, I, I, you know, there, there, there's lots of discussion about what we're going to do to help women who are in, in positions where they do not have access to the critical healthcare that they need. Um, and they will also no longer have access to birth control. That's the next thing is, you know, they're going to take birth control away, which, you know, we don't, we don't want to go there in this discussion. We'll be here for the rest of the day. Um, But yeah, there, let me just say there is a, there is a gigantic bunch of incredibly pissed off women in this country right now. And I think they've made a, they've made a horrible mistake thinking we're all going to burst into tears and do nothing. They should know us better than that. Nina, thank you so much. That was really, really beyond interesting, really captivated. And I've got to say, I, for one, would not have thought that this would have been an issue till we actually sat down and I really, really thought about it. And I went, holy shit, this is something that has completely and utterly oppressed women for hundreds and thousands of years to something that's, I was going to say, it's only recently, but even today, sometimes you still come across people go, oh, so you live on your own without a husband and without a man. And you're like, yes, I managed to keep my own finances <laughs> and have my own home, but it's okay. So thank you for opening my eyes. And I'm hoping it's opened up so many more people's eyes. And thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you for talking about this with us. Oh, well, thank you for having me. Hopefully I didn't wrap it on too long. Um, you can tell from talking to me that this is a, this is a, uh, I think this is an important area that needs to be explored more. Um, we need to understand the role being able to live on your own, what that does for a woman. Um, I mean, you know, Virginia Woolf, we all know her famous essay, right? Um, but, but I don't know how many of us have actually sat down and said, well, what exactly does that mean? Um, it is important. It continues to be important. As long as we don't pay women enough, this mm-hmm. is a problem. It's yeah. a problem. How is it now? One thing we haven't got to this week is the gender pay gap. Uh, That is categorically, we can't tell you how that was fixed because it's not fixed. No, it's not. It's not. And it's definitely something that needs addressing. And the last thing I'll say, because I know we do have to say goodbye for now, um, is is we know that housing is a crisis. It's, It's becoming worse and worse for everyone. But I would continue to argue that it is still harder for women. And, and it's harder for women be- simply because we don't, for many reasons, but the fundamental issue here is we don't get paid enough. And if you address that, you, you free up the ability to choose places to live without having to take what you can actually pay for. Uh, so that's a fundamental issue, I think, is, is the right to be paid what you should be paid for what you're doing and the autonomy that that gives you in terms of putting a roof over your head and how that leads to 
an incredibly different life than so many women are able to have now. People, join us tomorrow. Uh, if you think that Elaine and Nina have been uh, ranty, then you ain't seen nothing yet, because tomorrow, <laughs> join us for Eleanor Yanagar, uh, who is going to come back and talk about medieval history and tell you that abortion and contraception ain't new, people. Uh, and then on Friday, we will have the just the superlative uh, Alicia Rooks, who has a PhD in sex legislation, and it's going to blow your mind. Uh, and is coming at us live from New Orleans, where she's been out pounding the streets and screaming her head off already. So join us for the next instalment of what we're we're nicknaming Liberal Ranty Week, and we're not even sorry. When our guests join us to talk about their work in their new book, the forty-five minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org, where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash history hack or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.